you know, uh, one reason I love that song is because it's, it's, uh, it's, the idea of it comes from uh, one of my favorite encounters in Scripture. And that's where, uh, if I don't, if I have this wrong, just pretend it's right, and uh, we'll go, we'll roll with it. But uh, if I'm correct, I think Jesus had ended up having one of his, Jesus had a very interesting ministry on earth. Uh, he, he would minister, and people, he was, he would be pretty popular whenever he's like healing people, and like turning like water into wine and turning like a, a one little kid's lunch into enough to feed 5,000 people. Like people would flock to hear that. And then he would build up a big crowd and then he would say something that would just drive people crazy. They didn't know what to do with what he was saying. And one time he got up in front of everybody. He had a big crowd, huge crowd out there. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And uh, the crowd left, understandably enough. If I got up here one morning and I said that to you guys, I would hope that you guys would leave. There's a difference between me and Jesus, a pretty big difference in that he's the son of God and I'm absolutely nothing. But he got up and said that and his disciples were all like, you can imagine it like kind of what Dale and Kramer would have going on. If I got up one morning and said something crazy, the whole crowd leaves. I mean, we're not quite 5,000 people, but just roll with me in the example here. Uh, and, and everybody left, and they would come around me and say, man, what in the world is wrong with you? What are you saying? And so you get the f- kind of feeling that there's this kind of, this kind of atmosphere going on as everybody leaves, and the disciples come to Jesus, and he, instead of them asking him a question, he turns around to them, and he asks them a question. He says, aren't you going to leave me as well? And Peter, one of my, I'm going to try not to cry on this. Um, he's done pretty well so far on these Sunday mornings, not, not tearing up. But uh, P- Peter uh, looks at him and says, uh, where would we go? He, he doesn't say they hadn't thought about it. See, there, there's room in the Christian faith for weakness and doubt and un- uncertainty It's okay to think about it, but the rock bottom part that you come to when you've met Jesus and you've you've figured out who he is is you say, where else would I go? Maybe I woke up this morning and I was exploring other options. I was wondering, is there another path than to go down this way? But I came down the end and said, where would I go? He says, because you have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? As Dale mentioned in the beginning, um, this is one of those Sunday mornings where it's uh, kind of a push-through Sunday morning for me, quite honestly. Dale and I got here, and, and it's, it's helpful in those kind of mornings when you show up and you're kind of tired and you're not sure what's going on. It helps if you show up and Dale's smiling and he's like jumping up and down and Kramer's his usually bubbly self, and everybody else is kind of whistling and humming, but this is one of those mornings, I don't know if it's because it's kind of cold and rainy outside for a May Sunday morning, but it's just one of those mornings where it's kind of a push-through Sunday morning. And sort of as we were singing that song, I was thinking about that story and saying, ah, but where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. So as we open the book of Ephesians this morning, I'm going to be one of you guys, and I'm going to be looking to drink deeply of the Word of God this morning. I'm, I'm going to be looking to, to, to experience Him this morning as we study His Word, which uh, not ironically is actually what we're going to be talking about. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the first chapter of Ephesians. 
We have two more Sundays in the first chapter. I'm going to be working in verses 17 and 18 this morning, and then next week you guys get a special treat. Uh, Dale is going to be joining the rotation, and he's going to be speaking on verses 19 through 23. I'm very jealous. He got he picked that passage. It's a very awesome passage, but then again, this whole this whole book is. So that's why we chose it. Last week we were in verses 15 and 16, and we were talking about the acid tests of a successful church plant. We talked about how Paul had visited the city of Ephesus and had met some people there who were talking about, they're talking about God. They were serious, uh, but they didn't quite have the whole story. And he asked them, you know, what, into what were you baptized? And they said, well, we were baptized into the baptism of John, of John the Baptist. And that had to do with repentance. They recognized that they were sinners who, were, uh, who needed to repent of their sin. And he filled out the rest of the story and told them about how Jesus had died on the cross and as a substitute between them and God and had paid for their sin debt and, and that by faith and trust in him that they could be wiped clean. And so then they believed in him. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were baptized. And Paul ended up staying in the city of Ephesus for at least two years that we know of. And it said that the church grew not only in the city, which we said was uh, like the somewhere around the fourth largest city in the ancient world. It was a major city, had a lot of, lot of uh, trade going on. It was a very powerful city. So not only did all of Ephesus, it said, heard about the gospel, but it said the whole entire region had heard about the gospel, had heard about Jesus Christ. Amazing thing happened. We talked about how a cool thing happened. I think there were 12 guys that, that Paul encountered, and there's just a handful more of that here in this gym and here in this school this morning. And it doesn't take a big crowd, it just takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and some people who put their faith and trust in him and decide that they're going to follow him and make him disciples. And that that happened and it spread through the whole city and through the whole region. And Paul stayed there for a couple of years, he left, and now he's writing back to the, city, to the church that he planted in Ephesus and the other churches that were planted outside of that church in the whole region. So we talked about how it wasn't just one church he planted, but it was a church planting movement in the whole region around Ephesus, the whole region of Asia around it. Now he has, he's writing back to those churches, this is a circular letter, it went to the city of Ephesus, but they would take it and they would read it because they didn't have Facebook where he could just post these little pithy sayings and everybody would read it or Twitter, but he actually had to write on a piece of paper and they had to send it and they would bring it in a gathering like this and they would read it and hear what the, the church planter who had come, the Apostle Paul, had to say to them and then they would take it to the next church, the next church, the next church, in the whole region. And Paul is writing to them, last week we were talking about this, he's, he's saying that he was giving thanks for them. As a church planter, he was giving thanks. He was saying, this is success, that you have faith and love, that you're growing in faith and love. This is the acid test of your faith and my faith. And it's the acid test of whether we're going to be successful as a church planter or not. A week from now, a month from now, a five years from now, whether you are successfully growing as a believer and whether we are successful as a church will be based on the fact whether we are growing in faith and love. We talked about how it's not something you can make yourself do. Ever tried to make yourself have faith in something? Ever tried to make yourself love somebody when you don't really? It has to be a gift of God that happens in your heart that causes you to grow in faith and in love. And now Paul is turning the corner. He spent verses 3 through 14 just, just bubbling over with praise to God. 
Verses 3 to 14 is one giant sentence. He didn't even have time to put it in a period. He just kept on running on, running on, talking about how awesome God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is and all that they have done for us in Christ. He is bubbling over, and then he turns the corner as we get to this part, and he starts to pray for them. He says, not only have I heard about your faith and love, he says, but for this reason, for this reason I am praying for you. This is what he prays for them. And this is very important. This is also, a hope, hopefully, a bedrock truth, a bedrock principle of who we want to be as a church and who all of us should be individually as believers. We'll start in verse 15, focusing on 17 and 18. For this reason, for what reason? For all the reasons he was talking about, verses 3 through 14, he's pouring it on them. He says Jesus Christ is, back in verse 3, is blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that in verse 5, that he predestined us as sons, that it was that in verse 7 it says, in him we have redemption, we've been redeemed from our sin, that we also have forgiveness, that he lavishes grace upon us. That he is uniting all things in Christ. And we talked about that several weeks ago, that he's going to make all things right again through Christ. This world is broken, it's dark, but he will make all things right again. Verse 11, he talked about how we'd attain an inheritance. Again, he says that we've been predestined. He says then, one of the most precious truths of all of Scripture, in verse 13, when he says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We talked about how the God... God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is both in you and among us as believers. And then verse 15, for this reason, for all those reasons, for the truth of all that God has done and all that he is, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, what's what's he praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's he saying? He's saying, all this is true of God. He poured out a a theological, uh, just, I mean, have have you guys ever heard, uh, you guys ever heard Lecrae or some of the like modern, like Christian hip hop artists? I know I should, I am probably the person with the least amount of street cred to say the word hip hop in front of any group in the world. But there's this group of guys led by a guy named Lecrae, and they are awesome. They are the modern day psalmist, in my opinion. And when they start opening their mouth, they just pour out gospel truth. And that's what Paul dropped on us at the beginning of this letter. He pours out gospel truth upon us about who God is and what he has done for us on our behalf. But then he says, here's what I pray. I pray that because that is true, but I want that to be true for you. I want you to know that it is true. 
God has predestined you. He has chosen you. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has poured out his love upon you. He has lavished his grace upon you. And the scary part of that is that it's very possible that you and I as believers, as parts of members of a church, as Christians, that it's very possible that you and I could know that, that that could be true, and we could not taste that and experience that for ourselves. There is a big difference between something being true in Scripture and it being true in you. That's the wording that he's looking for as he's, as he's looking at. Think about that as we read this section again, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that you would have your eyes open. And that's what he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened you may know. That word know, you know what that word means in Scripture? <laughs> it means really intimate knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. It means not just simply believing something is true. It means, it's the difference, and I use this example a lot, I stole it from Jonathan Edwards and from tons of other people that use this since, but it's the difference between me telling you that honey is sweet and me explaining to you scientifically why, why honey tastes sweet on your tongue. Why does it have that effect when you drop it on your tongue, when you pour it in a, a cup of tea, whenever you, I don't know, whatever you do with honey, put it on toast. When you have a, a my mom used to make a peanut butter and honey sandwiches. When you taste that gooey sweetness, I can tell you about it. I can explain to you scientifically why it's true. You can believe me because I seem to be somebody trustworthy, but it's something totally different if you have tasted honey. I am, there's a few things that you'll learn about me besides that I love sports and I love food. Whenever I give examples, they're all based on that. But uh, there's several foods that I, uh, that I hate and foods that I love. Uh, pot roast is, to me, like Satan's food. It's terrible. It, it's, it's horrendous. They, they're going to serve it in hell. I'm absolutely confident of that. It is, it is horrendous. But things that I love, I love Good fried chicken, I love a great hamburger. Like, that's gourmet to me. A really good cheeseburger is, Meg and I went on a very fancy date Friday night. We went and picked up her computer from the repair shop, walked around Market Common a very little bit, went to Five Guys. That was our date night. It was awesome. But it, the, the, the burger was great, and I had the company of a beautiful, lovely lady through the whole thing. But one of my great, great loves besides Megan in the world is coffee. I, I love coffee. But, but, but I need to back up. I don't just love like any coffee. I love good coffee. There, there is a, and don't be offended, there is a world of a difference between a cup of coffee you get at the Kangaroo Express down the street. No offense if that's what you like. That's awesome. It is terrible, but it's awesome if you like it. There's a world of difference between a cup of coffee that you get at a gas station and a can of Folgers that you open up in your house and really good, lovingly blown, artfully uh, roasted and freshly ground coffee that's been properly prepared in the morning. There's nothing quite like that. And I, can, I could spend the next 15 minutes or longer explaining to you why the coffee that I'm going to make tomorrow morning is better than your coffee. 
I, I could explain to you and I can convince you that that's true. I could go on and on about the flavor profiles that they bring out and the elevations that they were grown in, grown in and the different regions of the world. It's like, it's kind of like good wine. Like it, this differs, like if there, was a, if there was a good rainy season or if it was sunny or if it was from South America or from Southeast Asia, you can taste the difference. There's a, a floral citrusy taste in East African coffees. That, why am I telling you this? But that, I'm telling you, I could explain to you even more the difference. The coffee that I order, now this is, sounds very high maintenance, and it, it, it really is. But the, the, I don't go buy coffee at the grocery store because I have tasted something different. I've been to the top of the mountain, and I can tell you what I have seen up there. There's a place that my, one of my personal favorites is called Intelligentsia. It's in Chicago. They they, if whenever I order my coffee, if I place an order tomorrow on Monday morning to order that coffee, they roast it that day and send it to me, and I get it. It's been fresh. It's, it's been freshly roasted, put in the bag, sent to me, or by an air delivery. That is, and then you don't you don't ground it like a week ahead of time. You ground it at the moment you're getting ready to 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 brew it. And, and, and don't brew it in, in an average coffee maker. It doesn't get it hot enough. you got to get the water hot enough. And there's the different ways that you brew it. It tastes differently. You can brew it. There's all different ways. You can do a pour over. You can do a, a, an immersion. There's all kinds of ways you can brew coffee, and it tastes differently, the same coffee. I can explain all that to you. You guys can think, boy, that guy's really silly. But when you come to my house, and we have dinner, and after dinner I say, I'm going to make some coffee, and you taste it, you will really know the difference. And that's the difference that Paul is talking about, that he's praying for in the believers in the area around Ephesus. He's saying, I've told you, not just in this letter, I told you for two years when I stayed with you about who God is and how awesome he is. And I'm encouraged because I've heard of your faith and love, but I'm concerned that you'll stop there. I'm concerned that you'll stop there and it'll just be simply knowledge to you and you won't know it. You won't know it. In fact, if it was a real concern to him, um, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation, the book of Revelation, we, we see Paul in this, the book of Ephesus. He's encouraging them. He's, he's encouraged. He's giving thanks for them. But look what happens in Revelation um, chapter 2, verse 1. There are, the church at Ephesus is one of the uh, churches that Jesus particularly addressed through the apostle John. To the angel of the, of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. If you stop right there, that sounds like, a, a, like it's continued to be a very successful church plant, right? I mean, if five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, if they could say all those things about us individually and us corporately here, that, that, would, be, that would sound to be very successful, right? 
They knew the doctrine. They were faithful. They were working hard. They were grinding it out. They were being, they were remaining faithful. But the next sentence breaks the whole thing down. The, the house of cards falls. But, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. See, it's very, very possible for you and I to be believers and to know what's true and to believe it and to affirm it, but to lose that that taste, to not be growing in that in that taste of Him and that knowledge of how beautiful and wonderful and marvelous He is. It's that that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. That God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside you, and you and I, through the work of Jesus Christ, have intimate communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's that that makes us different. It's not just a symbol of the cross, but it's what happened on the cross and through the cross at this very moment that is true that makes us different than everybody else. As a church plant, as as individual believers, we want to be pursuing two things. We want to be pursuing truth. And we want to be pursuing I don't like using this word, but it's the best I could find so far. We want to be pursuing experience. We want to be pursuing truth. We want to be pursuing experience and always comes in that order. What does that mean? That means that this truth that Paul is talking about of who God is and what he has done should then have an effect on us. It should change us. There should be an intimate communion that results from that, which we're going to talk about in a second. But it's not something that just happens automatically. It speaks about a a desire and a drive and a longing in our hearts. That's what Paul's talking about. He's praying for them, and he's saying you should be praying for this yourself because, because, again, he doesn't give you works to do. He doesn't say stop doing this and start doing this. He doesn't say you need to stop sleeping around or you need to read your Bible more. He doesn't start there. He starts in saying pray that I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your hearts, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation of who he is, that you can't work your way there. You can't grind your way there. It's the work of God's spirit that happens mystically, mysteriously, and spiritually in our soul. It's the language of those who have known God throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of eternity. When you hear their prayers, when you sing the song, when you read the songs that they sang, that they penned, when you read their journal entries, it's full of, of longing after God. It's full of a saying there, I, I can't just stop and knowing something's true. God, I, I have to know you. Moses, who knew more about who God was than anybody at the time of his life, he prayed to God. He said, don't leave me here. Show 
show me your face. I've got to know you. I've got to see you. I've got to have that intimate communion with you. It's different. It's the difference between having a long-distance relationship on Facebook and telephone and text message with somebody and actually knowing them personally. It's the difference between uh, coming home and saying hi to your wife and having an intimate communion and relationship with her so I know who she is, I know what she's about, I look into her eyes and I see the sparkle, I see the look whenever I say something in the few moments that actually make her laugh and in the moments that I say something that disappoint her and make her cry. It's that intimate communion that's that difference. It's the language of those who have known him. Look at Psalm 42. We're going to run through the Psalms because it's the, it's the heart of those people. It's the heart of David and the others whose heart beat after God. One of the most famous uh, sections of all of Scripture, uh, Psalm 42. Um, we, we've seen it on posters and we, we've probably had t-shirts with it on. We sang the song back in the day, but listen to what this is. This isn't like... like like cute little, no offense, this isn't a cute little K-love verse. This is the heart, deep, cry, longing after something verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? What, what is going through a deer, a deer's simple mind when the deer is hungry in the middle of a, uh, thirsty in the middle of a drought? There's only one thought going through that deer's mind. I've got to find some water. Got to find some water. I've got to find some water. They're consumed instinctively with their need for life. Look at Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul what? Thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land when there is no water. If you are in the middle of a desert, if you're in the middle of a drought, what, what are you thinking about? You're, all you are consumed with thinking. You're not, you're not distracted by what's, what's going on in, uh, on TV tonight. You're not distracted by what, what's going on on Facebook right now. You're not distracted by who is Jennifer Aniston dating this month. You're consumed by the fact that you are thirsty. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Psalm 36, verse 8. Start at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Look over at Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Think of the, the wording that was in all, every single one of those psalms. Tasting, thirsting. It's, it has to do with, with 
food analogies, like the, the fact that you're longing after, but it's not like I long for coffee in the morning or I'm a little bit hungry. It has to speak to a, a deep, a deep burning hunger and a deep thirst that you, you can't get quenched, that you're, you're desperate for. Look at Psalm 119. Verse 103, again with the, that kind of picture, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. At your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. You know, we live in a, an aspirational society. I was, I was listening to uh, something on the radio this week, and they were interviewing some guy. I don't remember who he was. I'd give him credit, but he... Not a believer. He was just saying, you know what? We live in an aspirational society and we're never content. And that's true. Our modern American society is all about drive. It's all about aspirations. It's all about, it's all about to pursue something. We're running around, pursuing career, pursuing pleasures, pursuing something. And you know what God says? He doesn't say you shouldn't be pursuing pleasure. He says you're pursuing the wrong pleasures. You're pursuing lower pleasures. C.S. Lewis described it as like you're sitting in a, a pile of mud, making mud pies, content to stay there when you're offered a holiday by the sea. It's not that, it's not that we, the problem isn't that we seek pleasure. The problem is we seek too low pleasure. We seek too fleeting pleasure. The problem with Christian, much, much of the Christian church in America today, there's lots of problems, but one of the major problems is that we sit fat with knowledge. You can quiz us and we can tell you back, you know, different Bible stories and who Jesus is and what he did, but that, that sense of his presence being with us, the sense of being satisfied as somebody who has drunk deeply from a fresh well, somebody who has tasted and seen that he is good and he is all satisfying, that is missing. And what I want and what you need is we, you individually, I individually, and we collectively as a body mean, need to be a people who are marked by a pursuit of truth and a pursuit of experience that we know him. That we aren't content to simply open a Bible in the morning and read a couple of verses or listen to some guy on Sunday morning or sing a couple of songs, but that we would be pursuing the fact that I would know that he is good. That I would taste and see that he is all, all satisfying. That he quenches every thirst and he fills every longing of my deepest soul. He himself, not in theory, but in truth. Not in theory, but in truth. And that's not something that I can make happen for you or somebody can make happen for me. That has to be something that 
that you and I begin with individually seeking. That as you get up in the morning and I, whenever I get up in the morning, I'm seeking two things. I'm seeking a toilet, I'm seeking a cup of coffee. For the truth that he is all satisfying. It needs to become collectively more real to us. So real that when we get up in the morning, we are conscious of the fact that he is the only one. i got to get to him. i got to get to him. And if I don't, I will die. Or worse, I will seek to satisfy the desire for pleasure any other thing. And you know what's terrible about that? Is it will satisfy you for a moment. And that's the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen to you and I is not that we totally fall away from God and aren't a part of church and aren't studying our scripture anymore and aren't singing songs and gathering with the people of God, going to community group. That's not the worst thing that could happen to you and me. The worst thing could happen is that we could be in the middle of all that and be seeking satisfaction in other places and not even realize it. Like a, like a frog in a pot that's slowly being heated up and not even realize. And that one of the saddest scenes of Scripture to me is when Samson decides that he's going to, he's been testing God over and over again because of a woman. That's a beautiful woman. I mean, that's not like out of, crazy land, is it? I mean, how many, well, we won't even go into that. And he gets up, and the scripture says that he didn't realize that his spirit was, wasn't with him any anymore. The problem isn't that we seek pleasure, that we seek such low pleasure, that our desires aren't strong enough what Paul is praying for the city for the church in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding region. Listen to that phrasing. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father of of glory. So how, how do how would you how do we increase that thirst and that hunger? When there are days that I wake up and I I want to mail it in. There are weeks I wake up and I want to mail it in. Not I'm not talking about doing the right thing. I'm talking about that that seeking that he would be real to me. It happens because when you and I see, when you and I see something glorious, we cannot help but to respond. Has, has there been anybody, I don't, I don't know, has anybody in this room been to the, the Grand Canyon? I haven't, I haven't been there. Has anybody been there? Do you, what's the response that you have whenever you stand on the side? I mean, you didn't, do you have to make yourself have that response? It just spontaneously came out, right? Has anybody been to Niagara Falls? I haven't been there either. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? What, what, 
What's the response that you had when you were, when you were there? Did, did you have to make yourself have that response? No, because when you and I see something glorious, we can't help but respond. But the problem is we don't see God the Father as the Father of all glory. That everything that is beautiful and good, everything that's amazing, all comes from Him. He is the Father of it all. And so Niagara Falls, the 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 Grand Canyon, a beautiful sunrise, the Rocky Mountains at sunset, all of that comes from him. All of that is our little pinpricks of his glory that's behind the veil. And that is your father and my father. And when we don't see him, we don't respond. But when you see him, you cannot help but to respond. So how does that happen? That happens through the gospel. Because the gospel, that's part of what Paul was talking about here in verses 3 through 14, whenever he's pouring forth all that God is and has done for us. When we hear, not just that he created the world, but that he created the world that we sinned against him, and that he came, became a man, stood in your place, in my place, whenever we, we see the gospel. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the clearest representation of who the Father is to us and who he was and what he did for us on our behalf. When we see that, it stirs our affections for him because we begin to see the glory of God. When you see, when you, when you not just know, but when you see, when you see, when you taste, when you drink deeply of who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross, it cannot help but begin to stir your affections for him. And the Holy Spirit will glorify the Son, and you will begin to sense and taste deeply of his presence. I'm not saying every morning or every afternoon or every Sunday or every community group is going to be get you crying and be all excited and you're waving your hands in the air. Maybe so. But he will be there in a very deep and real and personal way. Because here's the truth. Christianity isn't just about you. It's about us collectively as a community. But it includes personal, intimate relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth with you. When we see the gospel, when we hear it, when we study it, when we open our eyes to it, we see the glory of God. And you know what that creates? That creates joy and that creates worship. It creates joy and creates worship. Did you hear that language? All of the language that we read in those Psalms has to do with pleasure. In fact, he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we see him, he is glorified. We, 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 are, we wow to him and all that he is and has done for us. We cannot help but to find joy and pleasure in that, and we respond in worship. All that I am is yours. See, that's the path to you overcoming your besetting sins, the sins that you and I know 
or that nobody else maybe in this room knows, the, your issues, your problems, the things that you have trouble overcoming, that I had trouble overcoming. The, prop, the way to overcome that isn't through discipline. The way to overcome that is through beholding the glory of God through the gospel. And, and he, he, I start to worship him in those areas where I was worshiping myself, worshiping some other cheaper, smaller pleasure, something else. Your, your sin problem, my sin problem is a worship. That's a gradual thing that happens over time, but your sin problem and my sin problem is at its heart a worship problem. It's not a discipline problem. I, I don't want us to be known as a group of disciplined people, though that is a part of it. But the pathway is not through discipline. I want us to be known as a people who are relentless in our pursuit of truth, that's the gospel, experience. That's that intimate personal communion that results from the gospel. And that we're, we're continually and relentlessly pursuing him. Truth and experience together. That's what we want to be known for. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. Father, I confess that I, have, that I continually seek pleasure that are cheaper, not lasting pleasures. You have commanded me to seek pleasure. You have commanded me to seek joy. You commanded me to eat and to drink deeply, but not, but you, but you are the source of all life. And God, we hear the whispers, I hear the whispers of, of, of doubt, and that's okay. But God, where else will we go? What else will we do? You have the words, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so, Father, I pray you would help me. It's not going to happen at one time, but you would help me progressively to turn away from those lower pleasures and to make my life one of pursuing intimacy with you through truth, as a response to truth, as a response to continually seeing you reveal yourself by your Holy Spirit in your word. As the beautiful one. Father, do that in us. Help us to encourage each other in that way. Help us to push each other in that way. Help us to be a people who are not only pursuing individually, but are gathering and living life with each other in such a way that we are continually kicking each other in the pants to pursue, to pursue pleasure. Not be, that's not a, that's not a discipline thing. That's not a, I'm going to, I'm going to, 
white-knuckle through this. I'm going to push through it. That is a path of joy. In your presence. Lord, glorify your Son. As we live lives that show him to be the all-satisfying the source of all joy, of all love, of all, um, of all life.